Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord. He is God, the Lord. He is God. Please pray with me. And now, O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You who are our rock and our redeemer, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law and grow us 30, 60, and 100-fold, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What a victory. What an inspiring moment. What an, what an incredible story. What an incredible, uh, one, of the, one of the highest heights of biblical history that we find right here. But how did we get here, right? How did we get to this amazing, fun moment to read about? We have to go back to the beginning of the story that this chapter presents because you can't really understand the awesomeness of the victory of Elijah unless you understand the high stakes that are surrounding the story of Elijah. Because, well, at the beginning of this story, you have to recognize that God's people are living in fear. And fear, the kind of fear that they were living in, is the kind of fear that you and I can live in, and fear will make any of us waver. So let's go back to the beginning of the story, verses 1 through 6. Hear this. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. And Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass to save the horses and the mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself 
and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. You see, Elijah's victory over the prophets of Baal in this chapter is not just one more cool miracle story in the Bible. At the beginning of this story, we hear the problems, right? There was no rain here in Israel for more than three years. And as any farmer would know, a lack of rain creates a drought. And a drought creates a famine. And a famine kills off animals. And if the animals die, the people aren't far behind. Now the wicked king at the time, Ahab, is looking for Elijah because he needs someone to blame all his problems on. The prophet Obadiah is looking for Elijah because he's looking for his mentor to tell him what he should do in the midst of, of all of this. And the people, the people of Israel, they're willing to pray to any God that they think might actually answer them, who might actually save them. And the question is, does Elijah's God really care? So the question, first and foremost, is have you ever looked for someone to blame? Have you ever looked for a mentor to help? Have you ever wondered if God actually cares? If so, then pay attention, because what we're going to find out in the rest of this chapter is that we have to follow Elijah's God because we see him revealed as our prophet, priest, and king. And you're going to see that because Elijah is a, is a kind of prophet, priest, and king that we'll see in this chapter. And he's going to teach us about who God is. And when you know God in all his fullness as your own prophet, priest, and king, as he is in this story, then what it does to you when you get that down in your heart and it catches fire is that it starts to, it starts to burn away the fear that would make you waver in whatever your circumstances are. So first, let's look at how Elijah shows himself as a prophet. And then we'll look at him as a priest and then as a king. But first, as a prophet, he shows himself. He shows up as a prophet. I mean, like he, he literally shows himself. After living in hiding for three, three and a half years, Elijah shows up and is actually seen for the first time by Obadiah, his fellow prophet. Here it is in verses 7 through 14. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he's not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I've gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth, has it not been told my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. What's going on here? Elijah shows up as the prophet of God. But Obadiah sees it as his own death sentence. 
See, the heart of the conversation in verses 7 through 14 is that Elijah shows himself and he gives Obadiah this command to obey. And Obadiah says, in effect, if I obey your command, I'm going to die. Now, you have to appreciate how Obadiah reasons this one out, right? I mean, and I think sometimes you and I may, may reason things out like this. Obadiah is looking for Elijah, and he's not glad when he finds him. Uh, Elijah says, go tell Ahab that I'm here. Go tell your boss, the wicked king, that, I, that the guy he's looking for has finally showed up. And Obadiah says, do you, like, what kind of sinner do you think I am that you would send me to my death like this? Obadiah says, in essence, first, the wicked king that I work for is, is intent on finding you. He's obsessed with finding you, Elijah. He's ready to blame this whole famine that we're experiencing on you. And he's made all kinds of people swear that they haven't found you and that you're not hiding in their basement. Obadiah has seen Ahab's wickedness up close and personal, and he's afraid. The wicked king is going to blame his problems on somebody probably on one of the prophets, if not on Elijah himself. And that's why Obadiah hid these guys. He's keeping them alive, but Obadiah's fear sends him into crazy reasoning. So, man, Elijah, if I walk away from you, you're going to disappear. You'll just be gone. God's spirit is going to take you away. And then my wicked boss is going to call me a liar. And then he's going to kill me. Obadiah is a man who is afraid. And listen to the rest of his reasoning. He basically says, haven't I done enough good deeds to keep me from getting killed? <laughs> I mean, I saved my brothers and I was motivated from the depth of my heart to keep them alive. Who else would have done that? Don't I deserve something better than a death sentence? Death is the only outcome Obadiah can imagine from, uh, from following this command. Obadiah has some some fear blinders on. Fear is making Obadiah waver between obeying Elijah or running the other direction. He's so afraid, he's questioning whether or not to obey the head prophet, the one who is God's mouthpiece, the, the very word of God being given to him. What kind of fear have you experienced that makes you waver? What kind of fear makes you waver and question whether or not you should obey God's word? How does your mind, how do you find yourself reasoning when you're afraid? Now, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice what Elijah does not do. In this moment, he's standing there. He wants Obadiah to go. He does not say, Obadiah, I cross my heart, hope to die. I'll be here. He doesn't provide him with uh, extra proofs. He doesn't give him any token that he'll still be there. Elijah simply restates his original promise, the original word, and he says it in the name of God. This is verses 15 through 19. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. The respect of God's name, the respect that motivated Obadiah with all his heart, to hide those prophets from the wicked king. That's the respect that moves Obadiah to obey Elijah in the face of his fear. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And fear there, we could define as 
a heart-motivating respect. It's not cower under the table, but it's a heart-motivating respect. The Lord of hosts is alive, and he gives life to all. Do you respect that name? Do you respect that covenant God more than your fear of death? Obadiah did. And so Obadiah went to meet Ahab, and he told him, and Ahab, when he heard that Elijah was there, went to meet Elijah. And don't miss the fact that Elijah said, I'll show myself to Ahab, but it actually is Ahab who then comes and shows himself to Elijah. Uh, you know, we're kind of asking, who has the authority here? And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather, to, gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. You see, Elijah shows up as a prophet. He shows up as God's mouthpiece, speaking God's word. And he says to the wicked king, you've abandoned the Lord and you've led the people in abandoning the Lord. You've traded him in for a bunch of no account gods and a bunch of no account prophets. I'm not the trouble of Israel. You are. And now Elijah's going to show up and show himself to be a priest. Fear makes not just Obadiah waver. Fear makes the people of God waver. This is uh, verses 20 through 24. The story goes on. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and he gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets, there are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And now the people answered. They spoke, it is well spoken. So now when the people say, it is well spoken, what does that mean? It means they will follow whoever answers them in the clearest and most dramatic fashion. Elijah, Elijah grants them the thing that, that, is, that is obvious. He says, it is way easier to follow the crowd of 450 religious professionals that are all telling you that Baal is God than it is to follow little old me who's been in hiding for three and a half years and I just show back up on the scene. I get that. But then let's see how it turns out in verses 25 and 26. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and they called upon the name of Baal from morning 
until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. Do you get it? There are more of them. They get to choose their own bull. They get to go first. They get to do everything. They get to set, they get to set things up however they want. And God's people are limping between these prophets of Baal and what they see Elijah doing. But, but the other guys, these guys, end up limping around the altar. No answer, shouting out loud, all their religious fervor, and nothing's going on. And at this point, Elijah decides to have a little fun with them. At noon, in verse 27, it says, At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing or he's, uh, in the most politest way, relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Do you get it? They're covering themselves in their own blood. In their own blood, sweat, and tears, they're just shouting, waiting, trying to you know, put on this show, this religious show, trying to see that something will happen. And, uh, and Elijah makes fun of them. Yes, is your God, did, did your God have to take a potty break? Is that why he's not answering your prayer? Now, before we make too much fun of them, I wonder if there's something we can learn from Elijah's mocking, right? He says four things. He says their God is either musing, relieving himself, on a journey, or he's asleep. Do you ever think God isn't answering you because he's musing? He's just sort of thinking it over. He's kind of weighing his options out. Oh, should I answer, should I answer Tag's prayer or not? I'm not sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to weigh my options here. Do you ever doubt God thinking he's relieving himself? I mean, there are plenty of religions throughout time where God is thought to have human limitations, that God, that they bring food sacrifices to God because the gods are actually hungry. But have you ever said something like, I don't know, God, God doesn't have time to answer my prayer. He's got, he's got his own things to worry about. He's running the world after all, right? Do you ever think God has something else to worry about and he can't, he doesn't have time to think about you because he has some sort of limitation, some sort of human limitation, like, like when you and I can't listen to one of our friends because we have to go to the bathroom so bad. Or a God who is on a journey. A God who's on a journey is a God who is, who is becoming, not a God who is ultimate being. Something like uh, perhaps the, the God of something like open theism if you've ever heard of, of uh, such a thing, a God who is not complete, a God who is on his way to becoming a better version of himself. Some people believe in a God like that. Or do you wonder if God is asleep? Do you wonder if God is just an impersonal force who is completely unaware of your situation? You see, Elijah's a prophet, and prophets speak the word of God, but prophets also listen to God's people as well as they speak. And I can't help but think that these four things that Elijah puts out there might have come from somewhere. 
They might have come from some of the objections that he's heard people level at who is God. So now the question is, if, if you've ever you know, wondered about God, if you've ever doubted, what is it that changes our own thoughts about God's answers to our prayers? What changes our limping opinions into something more like a firm trust? I'd say it's this, proper worship. And that's, that's why I, th I say that Elijah here reveals himself as a priest. What, what Elijah does it, when he wants the people to quit wavering between two opinions and their doubts about God is he says, guys, I'm going to repair your worship. We're going to have, we're going to have proper worship. He issues a challenge. Think of all the different challenges he could have issued, and he chooses to issue a challenge about worship. He repairs the altar first. Don't miss that in this story. He takes the 12 stones for the 12 sons. And before the fire falls, Elijah prays. True worship, proper worship, is putting the wood on the altar and calling out to God. But what matters is not so much the wood, is not so much the altar, but what matters is the object of your worship. Remember, in this, in this instance, both, both sets of religious people did the same thing. They both had altars, they both had wood, they both had bulls, they cut it up, they laid it on, and they both called out. And the, and the thing that's different is the object of their worship. Who are they calling out to? Who is the object of your worship? For whom do you put wood on the altar? Elijah's God is not musing because Elijah's God knows the end from the beginning. Elijah's God is complete in and of himself. He has no human needs nor limitations. Elijah's God is perfect. He is ultimate being, and all being flows out from that God. Elijah's God is not an impersonal force. You see, Elijah, Elijah shows himself to be a priest when he repairs the people's worship. And then finally, he leads the people like a king. And what do I mean by that? A king issues orders that are followed, and a king executes his enemies. Listen to verses 40 through 46. And Elijah said to them, seize, this is after the fire has fallen, right? He says, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, right? This is the prophet speaking to the king. Go up. Eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. You see, Elijah, uh, Elijah issues orders like a king, and those orders are obeyed. Elijah actually issues orders to the king, and the king obeys him. 
He issues orders to his servant, no surprise. And then it's also no surprise then uh, when you get to this moment where Elijah runs in a miraculous way and beats the king to Jezreel. And what's Jezreel? It's sort of like, uh, think of it as sort of like the king of Israel's Camp David. It's like sort of like the capital away from the capital, uh, right? So Ahab is running to his winter house and uh, Elijah beats him to his own resort, sort of like he's going to, he's going to welcome the king to his own uh, resort. Elijah gets to the king's place before the camp. Now, at this point, maybe a few of you are thinking, oh, okay, Tag, I, 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 I hear where you're going, and I think that this, you might be making a little bit of a stretch with this king thing, this, especially the whole prophet, priest, and king thing. You might especially think that if you've been in, in Reformed and Presbyterian churches at all for a while, uh, it feels like we're always uh, like looking under a rock for prophet, priest, and king. Uh, it's, it's kind of a thing. Um, so let me first say I, I get it. I get that you can see that as, uh, as maybe a stretch. Uh, you know, when I first started thinking about this idea, I thought it was something that the Puritans made up. Uh, and then we just, for hundreds of years later, we've been trying to sell our congregations on prophet, priest, and king because it's kind of trendy or maybe it felt like it was. But will you let me challenge you? After almost 20 years of looking at this idea, what I want you to know is that the Puritans did not make up this typology of prophet, priest, and king. They didn't make it up. They found it. They found it in the Bible. And if you open your eyes to it, if you read scripture looking for uh, prophets and priests and kings and how people act in those ways, you'll see it. And now I'll, I'll give you that the king thing in this particular instance, in this chapter, may feel like a little bit of a stretch. But if you stick with this whole sermon series and look at who Elijah is, you can't look at Elijah very long without seeing a prophet who shows up when Israel has a string of bad kings, and he does some very kingly leading. So keep your eyes on Elijah and see what he does. And who does God send in the midst of a, of a string of bad kings? He sends someone who is very kingly. But if I were going to choose just one of these aspects, prophet, priest, or king, that stands out most in this chapter, well, I don't know. Which one would you pick? I mean, I'm going to say priest, and this is why. Because what matters the most here isn't how big the fire is. Uh, it isn't about how wet the altar was. But what matters most, I said it before, is the object of worship. Elijah leads the people to true worship. He repairs the altar in the name of the God of Jacob. Twelve stones for twelve sons who became twelve tribes. This is not just some random God. This is a very specific historical God. He, and Elijah prays in a very specific way, one that I think you and I can learn from. And that's what a priest is supposed to do, teach the people to pray. And how does he pray? I'm, I'm, I say it's got five things. I call it the address, the doctrine, the petition, the result, and the name. He prays with an address, doctrine, petition, result, and name. He begins with an address. He says exactly who he's talking to, O oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the name of the one true God. And then a doctrine, something that is true about God. You are God in Israel. I am your servant, which means 
you are my master. I have done all these things at your word, which means your commands I obey. And the third thing in his prayer is a petition, the, the actual ask. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. And here he's saying, you know, answer me with fire because that's the challenge that's been set up. And the fourth thing is the hoped-for result of the prayer, right? The result is answer me so that this people will know that you are God and that you are the one who's turned their hearts back to you. And the fifth thing is that all this is done in the name of God. Three times in the prayer he says, O oh Lord, and in your Bible it's in all caps, meaning uh, it's God's covenant name, Yahweh. So I want to encourage you, as we look at Elijah, the priestly leader here, I want you to think about how you pray. I wonder what might happen for all of us if in private or in public we let this example of address, doctrine, petition, result, and name guide the way that we pray. But remember, it's not really about the formula. It's about the object. Who are you calling out to? I mean... To really be honest with you, I think sometimes my prayers may sound more like this. Oh God, grantor of my wishes, don't you love to do what I ask? Give me my latest whim that I might spend it on myself and feel the way I want to feel because I kind of think I deserve it. Don't you? Amen. How can we reform our worship? How can we how can we quit wavering in our fears? You know, uh, there's, a, there's a song I listened to this week, a really old song, some of you will know, called The Days of Elijah. And it's kind of a fun, you can jam to it, worship song. Um, uh, and as I listened to it, uh, I, realized something, uh, I realized something afresh. Uh, we don't live in the days of Elijah. We don't live in the days of Elijah. If you're wavering because of your fear between two opinions about who God is, what are you supposed to look to? There was a God in this chapter who answered in a clear and dramatic fashion and with fire on an altar. What are we supposed to look to? How is God going to answer us in a clear and dramatic fashion? He already has. And the most clear and most dramatic answer and the way in which God has answered us has been through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because yes, Jesus is the true prophet, priest, and king who keeps us from wavering in our fears. Jesus is the one who shows up as the true prophet, not just speaking God's word, but by himself being God's word incarnate. And like Obadiah, we can be afraid of what we hear Jesus say. We can be afraid to obey, but it's Jesus is the one who says, as I live, so shall you live. Now go where I send you. Jesus is the true priest. He not only repairs the altar of our worship and teaches us to pray, but more than that, Jesus is the object of our worship because he's resurrected from the dead and because he is not only the priest, but he is also the sacrifice on the cross. He shows us God and becomes a sacrifice for us. Jesus didn't go to the top of Mount Carmel. He went to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And he didn't bow down with his head between his knees, but he was humiliated on the cross. He didn't give rain. He gave his blood so that you and I could be washed clean from our fears and from our false worship. So now, because of that, you can know him, the resurrected Christ, as the true king, the one who offers forgiveness to the ones who were his enemies. And why would you make another God your king when 
when you have such amazing grace held out as the offer for you. When you and I are afraid, we're just looking for anyone who can answer us. But the more you know Jesus, Jesus who promised himself to you in his prophetic word, Jesus who offered himself for you in his priestly work, and the one who now leads you through life as your true king, the more you can have confidence no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. Let's pray. Almighty God, the one who sent Elijah to point us to Jesus, our true prophet, priest, and king, I ask you to repair our worship that we would come only to you, not limping between opinions. Turn our hearts back to you through the love of your son, Jesus, that we might really know you, the one true God who's worshiped forever and ever. Amen.